You are now tuned in to the December 26er podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey family, welcome to episode 16 of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and I am excited because we are back with another interview. My guest for this episode is Rashid Thomas. Rashib is a veteran human resources professional, the founder of RT Consulting, and the author of Bout That Life, Leadership Lessons for the Urban Professional. Now, in this interview, we take a deep dive into some of those lessons, some you may consider unconventional, but Rashib says they were derived from the elders in his life, and he's been able to apply them to his professional journey. And what a journey it has been. I don't want to give too much away, but let me just say this. If you have struggled with self-worth, or if you're trying to figure out your next move after suffering a personal crisis, or if you just want to know how to command any room that you walk into, this one is for you. Take a listen. You set? I'm set. Got it. Rashid Thomas. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the December 26th podcast. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. So am I. So to get started, I like to allow guests to introduce themselves. So whatever it is that you want to tell about yourself, who is Rashib? So Rashib is sometimes Southern, sometimes uh, very global and very worldly. But Rashib is a human resources professional who is also a transformational trainer and a community advocate. So throughout my years, I've been able to work in spaces that allow people to have employment and to grow their careers. I've also been involved in the community. So through civil rights organizations and as of late and over the last years, as I've done my own transformational work into not therapy, but work that's therapeutic to uncover what was holding me back. I'm now paying that forward and doing that for others. So that was a lot, right? But if I had to sum it up, I am an HR professional. I have my own consulting company, RT Consulting, where I help individuals with uh, career coaching and counseling and any small trainings or anything that a small company or anyone wants to accomplish. Awesome. So I got stuck at transformational training. Those words sound very appealing to me. This podcast is all about people creating the life that they want and manifesting their vision. And and many aspects of that really require you to transform. Absolutely. Transform your view, transform your thinking, transform your emotions. So what does transformational training mean for you? Absolutely. And you know what? It dawned on me that I forgot the most important thing. I am an author and I wrote a book called About That Life. Which we're going to get into. (laughs) Leadership Lessons for the Urban Professional. And really, that is a product and a result of me being in the transformational space. So transformational training is just creating a space where people can look and potentially make new choices. So you look at root causes. Um, and let me go back and say when they just look, they're actually questioning themselves or they're in the question. Why do I do that? Why is this important to me? Why is this triggering me? And really creating the space where they spend time with it, deal with it, look at it, and then make new choices around that. So, um, this book is a result of me doing my own work, looking at what was holding me back, look at what was in my way and looking at what I really wanted to do or didn't want to do. And one of the things that I wanted to do was write a book. And so transformational training supported me from taking it from a nice idea to actually having a tangible result. Okay. So I'm going to jump right in. So because you, you mentioned going from having a nice idea to having a tangible result. I talk with ideas people all the time. 
I'm an ideas person. I'm always generating some new thing that I think would be great. Implementation and execution is is completely different. And most of us get stuck at the thought without ever actually getting it out into the world. So what is the advice that you would give someone who has the idea and wants to actually manifest it into something tangible? So here's where transformational training Mm -hmm. comes into play. So like you said, you're an idea generator. You always have great ideas. I always have great ideas. I could go to a trunk. I could go to a list. I could go to a vision board after vision board after vision board where I had nice ideas. What I didn't know that I didn't know and I didn't even know I didn't know it, that's what we say in our transformational space, is that what was in my blind spot were issues of unworthiness. What was in my blind spot were issues with my father. Although in my forefront, it wasn't present to me. Have an okay relationship with my father. Didn't realize that I had issues that um, of abandonment or even as I talk about in the book, uh, issues with my sexuality, although I walk every day, I have a good job, what have you. So every time I wanted to start something or every time I had an idea, some things did come to fruition. But the things that mattered most to me didn't because what was in my way were issues of worthiness. So what I offer to your listeners and anytime that they're Um, trying to execute something and keep hitting a roadblock, there's a reason why they're hitting the roadblock and there's something in their blind spot. It may be, it may not be traumatic or anything. It just may be something that they weren't aware of. And once they uncover that, they can now access what they need to have that result come to fruition. Awesome. So you you brought up an important point for me, the self self-worthiness aspect. I actually talk about this in uh, episode five. And I talk about self-esteem versus self-worth because they're not the same thing. And I actually wrote it down on a, a page in the book and I'll try to find it on one of my flags here. Mm-hmm. So you said it's on page 20. I used to think in the back of my mind that Rashid, you're only given access because of what you can do. I learned how to receive acknowledgement just for being me, nothing or no one else. And you can see that I wrote here, self-esteem versus self-worth. So how I describe self-esteem is how you feel about yourself because of what you can do or who you are. Self-worth is being confident despite all of that and being comfortable despite what it is that your talents are or your gifts. And I think we often confuse the two. You can have really high self-confidence and really high self-esteem and not feel worthy. And I agree with you that a lot of people get caught up in the former, particularly high achievers. We're very good at like projecting out to the world that I'm working really hard, but so much of our our identity is tied up in what it is that we can do, what we can do for other people. And then we resent it. But that's what we're putting out into the world and not really dealing with, am I enough? Despite all the gifts, despite all the talents, am I enough? And when you can get into that space of feeling worthy of what, whether you call it God or the universe, has to offer you, that's when those real significant blessings start to appear. Absolutely. So I'm glad you brought that up for sure. Um, so yeah, let's just keep talking about the book since we went there. We, we went right into it. And let me tell you, mm-hmm. um, you brought up, uh, I think, mm-hmm. chapter two. So where I talk about losing an election. So, for, um, so now I'm 43 years old mm-hmm. today. Um, I've been volunteering with an organization of National Urban League since I was 20 years old. Okay. A significant portion of my life. And in 2013, I was no different from what we now know of as Hillary Clinton. I was next. 
I had worked my way up the ranks. I had uh, been a community service chair of the New York Urban League Young Professionals. I had been Eastern Region Vice President of 14 chapters in the Eastern Region. Wow. I then grew the region by four chapters of founding new chapters and just getting the word out. I was the successor to the national president. I was next. I had relationships from coast to coast. Young professionals aged 21 through 40 called me on a daily basis around the clock to seek advice and guidance around not just what to do with their chapters, but what to do with themselves as they were experiencing and uncovering all of these self-esteem versus self-worth issues in their leadership roles, because nothing will bring that out of you more than when you're in the spotlight. So I was next and had what what I didn't know or what happened was the incumbent decided to rerun. So in our 14 year history at the time, the incumbents had never rerun. They ran, they did their two hour or their two, I'm sorry, their two year terms and then they left and I was supposed to be next. So the incumbent reran. It was a space of no one really had any issues with uh, the incumbent and I was vying to go to the next step. So I tell in the book and I write about having just a dramatic parliamentary debate where the first tie that came down, I mean, the first vote that came down was a tie. And then a parliamentary uh, debate ensued where people were, the voting delegates were sequestered and it was dramatic. It was House of Cards. It was a Miss America pageant or Miss Universe when Steve Harvey called the wrong one and it was actually Miss Philippines, <laughs> right? It was just that emotional and that much of a roller coaster. Second vote came down and I was three votes shy of my goal. Up until then, and when that moment happened, that was, it said to me, that everything I had been doing since I was 20 years old was wrong and it wasn't enough. Right. Therefore, I was saying I wasn't enough. So when I talk about sitting still just long enough, all my leadership roles had been stripped away. And I'm saying stripped, no one did anything to me, but that's how it felt. There was a moment of the phone stopped ringing and the email stopped coming because I could no longer provide access to other people. I could no longer... Uh, promote their brand or boost their brand by having my presence and having this person of the National Urban League Young Professionals on the ticket on the committee. I had no leverage and no one wanted to be bothered with me. So I thought what I realized in that space were the people who were still around. As I'm, I grew up in New Orleans, so I must say it just like I'd say it in New Orleans, they love my, me for my dirty draws or, you know, <laughs> They didn't care whether I had a title or didn't have a title. And I realized those were people in my life that I probably put to the back burner while I was in these leadership roles because they were always there and they were always supporting me. And they were always the people that I could go to for support and for nurturing and just to be an honesty partner, as I like to say, where I could just really say how I'm feeling, where I couldn't say that in a space uh, where there were elected positions because then the information would be political, right? right? And all this is volunteer. Nobody's getting paid to do this. And I re I look back on that. So um, one of the moments where I realized how loved I was were a couple of friends that we were together and we were in Cabo after the election. And, you know, it sounds so bourgeois to say <laughs> we were in Cabo and we were actually in the water and they were talking to me about the election. And I told them that that was the most um, most revealing thing or the most the biggest revolution or revelation that I had was just who really cared for me. And people call and say, I don't care if you have a title. I just want to see how you're doing. 
And there was more information that happened after that. But that was just the beginning that once all that was stripped away, who was actually there to support me? And then the final thing I'll say about that is I also got to see, you know, who I write about T.D. Jakes having a YouTube called uh, Comrades, Confidence and Constituents. Mm -hmm. Who's into you or who's for you because they're for what you're for and then who's really against what you're against. So those bedfellows, as we always talk about. Right. So one other thing that I liked uh, about the experience that you recount in the book is you mentioned you can, I'm paraphrasing, but you mentioned you can ask for something and get it, but it may not come in the form that you thought it would. So you didn't necessarily get the position that you wanted, but you were getting calls to help maybe at a more granular level, but it is the work that you wanted to do and you still wanted to be of service. And I think often with our generation and, you know, they always talk about millennials, we have our sight set and we are the secret. We, we are, Absolutely. you know, this group that feels like if we think it and we envision it, it can manifest. And sometimes we're so married to that version of the vision that it has manifested, just not in the way that you thought. So how do you encourage people to really be open to the dream coming, but coming in a different package than what they expected? That's a great question. And I do write about that in the book that I was um, I was willing or committed to having it turn out, but not how it turned out. So I know this now. Did I necessarily know it when I was walking through it? And I do talk about that in the book where um, I talk about I had made some declarations. I prayed to God before I uh decided to run for the National Urban League Young Professionals president, and I made some promises. All throughout the journey, though, I talk about just spiritual growth, and I talk about listening to uh, voices or just listening to my heart, and I kept hearing, I have something else for you. And that was contrary to my goal at hand. So after losing the election and the phone calls started coming, and people started calling me saying, um, I was sharing with them, oh my God, I had so many things I wanted to do with the organization. And I, I can't now. And they said, well, what do you want to do with me? And then that's when the aha moments came. And what I didn't know before that I know now and is that leadership needs no titles. I must say that was the longest lesson or the hardest lesson it took for me to learn because I was so wrapped up in title. I was so wrapped up in my self-worth, thinking that people only gave me access because of what I could do. And the things that I can do, I do very well. My mom always jokes and says that I don't have common sense, but I always have to remind her that mom, I do because I walk into spaces, I can figure out Excel or have figured out Excel and uh, complex formulas and never taken an Excel class. But yet people who have are sitting there struggling and I'm saying, surely this can't be tough. Or I've been able to simplify processes and systems and then teach them to others uh, when other people who have or black belt Six Sigmas or whatnot can't do that. And I'm saying, surely this can't be difficult. I've been able to do that and bless with that. And so, but it again, my identity was tied in that thinking that if I all of a sudden couldn't do that, then no one would love me or no one would want me. And so uh, when I realized that the how wasn't actually through the position. It actually was through uh, the relationships that I had with people. So people calling me saying, hey, I want to do that with you no matter what. And then the next person called saying, I want to do that with you no matter what. And then the next person and the next person. And I realized that I didn't need a title and I was still doing the work that I had declared to God that I was going to do. So 
keep working. Keep working. So I want to talk a little bit more about that village. So the people who were calling and saying, I want to work with you Mm -hmm. no matter what. These are the kinds of people that we need in our lives. Absolutely. It it brings me to one of my favorite quotes in the book. It's on page 14. Friends don't make it difficult to be friends. What do you mean by that? Oh, my goodness. You bring that up. And I think my heart just opened up um, just thinking about the people in my life. Um, So... Some friends, and if I ask you, you or your listeners just to think about it, some people you're very easy to be in a relationship with. They check on you, you check on them, they know what you like, you or you communicate it, so on and so forth. Um, they There's not a struggle in the relationship, so they just make it very easy. And there seems to be growth that happens. Like I have friends, I took notice of friends in my life or people in my life that if I said I had an idea, a business idea, they'd say, oh, that's amazing. What are you doing next? And after that, and what are the steps in that? And tell me more. And that other people who were saying, oh, you're up to something again or trying to create that. And even me talking about the Urban League, I realized some of my friends who from from my age of 20 up until now, some of those friends said, are you still volunteering with the Urban League? Are you still doing that Urban League stuff? And I'm going, uh, this is a significant portion of my life. Right. So, yeah, friends, there's some people that they're easy to be in relationship with. And I think we know who they are. Um, they check on us when we're not feeling good. Um, we check on them, vice versa. And it's love is present. Love is present. I like that. And also, too, I think sometimes we can mistake what I call situational friendships or seasonal friendships for forever friendships, because I know that there are people that have been present in my life to serve a purpose and for a season. I may not have known it at the time, but at some point you naturally go in, in different directions. And often 26ers, we overachiever types, we get attached and we feel rejected. Yes. If the season is changing and the vibe is changing and you know, you're, you're growing apart. So how do you deal with that when a relationship or a friendship that you once treasured now looks different. It's not what it used to be or it's severed completely. I think it's part of your own or our own and my own spiritual growth and also just living long enough to see the world turn. My mom used to always joke and say that like, Rashib, I've been on this planet longer than you. And now I can see that. So I know, and like you just said, the, uh, relationships have seasons and it's okay. It's okay to put people in different buckets. Some people are in your love bucket to where you know you can go get your cup filled from them and they just, you have a good time and maybe you shouldn't eat that food ever at their house because it's too many calories or it's not <laughs> gluten-free or vegan, but it tastes good. And then there are other people that you go to absolutely for strategy, absolutely for planning, absolutely to, you know, step your game up. Um I think living long enough, people will see that that's the natural order of things. And also um, knowing who you are in the matter and knowing that maybe the relationship may have dwindled, but you're still available. They're still available. And I'd like to say I I quote something from um, A Course in Miracles that says all things are lessons God would have me learn. So just like you said, you learned lessons and knew that they were in their, your life for a season, then it's me recognizing and I offer to your listeners recognizing that this is for a season and and, and it's, we'll all see each other again on one day, right? Right. Awesome. So I want to go back to what you mentioned about your own personal approach and you may not have the Six Sigma certification or this and that, but you get in there and you you figure it out and you make it happen. That, that takes a level of confidence. And one of my icons in, in my life is Maya Angelou. 
I've read all of her autobiographies multiple times. And one of the themes throughout that I admire so much is she knew how to say yes. Even if she didn't know how to do something, even if she didn't have the skills then, she would get in there, roll her sleeves up and, and figure it out. We can get paralyzed by analysis. Well, I don't have all the skills I think I need for this. And I don't know how to necessarily move forward and be successful. And sometimes that paralyzes us to the point that we won't even try. Mm. But you read, you wrote in the book, which I really uh, loved, is know that only what you have not given can be lacking in a in relationship. Which I was reminded of that when you brought up you, how you approach situations. So what does that mean exactly? What does that signify for the young professional who may not feel equipped to do what has been presented to them? So thank you for bringing that up. So yes, Maya Angelou, I've seen her um, even on like Masterclass with Oprah mm-hmm. talking about being a yes and saying yes. And then I also think about, before we finish today, I'm going to think about one of my favorite uh, poems from her where she talks about a woman on a bus mm-hmm. and uh, who's laughing. And what I think about uh, saying yes or being a yes is when you say yes, the universe does show up to provide an answer. So anytime that there's a problem, I believe and have learned that the universe always provides the solution. So even though you may not be the most skilled or equipped person to do something, if someone is asking it of you, that's because there's a purpose, there's some reason, some lesson that you get to step into, some opportunity that's available for you. So when I say or write about um, the line from A Course in Miracles that says only what you are not giving can be lacking in any situation. So it might be understanding. It might be knowledge or commitment. So if that needs to be present, you as the individual, I as the individual need to bring it and the support, I believe, will show up. So if it's understanding or comprehension or knowledge, then it's lacking because I'm not giving it. So then I go get it right. Um, It's more we use it more in a relationship sense. So if uh, connection or understanding or communication is not present, that's because you're not giving it or compassion. even. Right. So in a business sense, it's when you say yes, the universe will show up um, to provide you with the answers. And here's the funny thing that maybe the 26ers know. How many times have we supported people or worked for people that have no idea what they're doing? Oh, man, more times than I'd like to remember, actually. <laughs> And yet we're the person, the universe allowed us to support them so they can get it done. So I believe we're entitled to the same form of grace. And so that will show up. And it's just being a yes. Instead of saying no and instead of questioning yourself, be the yes and then demand on the universe, put a demand that to have your resources show up. So speaking of show up, we're talking about that in the figurative sense, but I want to talk about it in the literal sense Mm -hmm. um, and offer one of the tactical uh, tools in the book that I, I really like, where you talked about you should show up to an event or to a conversation with three talking points prepared. Can you expound on that? Absolutely. Um, keep a sermon in your pocket. Yes. Uh, so, so especially we're in the limelight and when we're called to be of service and we're called to be leaders in our community, you walk into a room and people want to hand you the mic or people want to say something to you. I found that very often and very common in my roles with the Urban League or even in my roles as just a, a, a trainer, or a leader in my community. And you should keep something to where you give someone, th- I say three points, you give someone um, just where you are and what's going on in present day. You also, number two, make an ask of some sort. Uh, or give the listener the next steps and then also give information about your organization or what your 
currently working on, but have that prepared. So if you're getting going to an event and you know that people may ask you questions or you know that there's something that you need to uh, uh, communicate to others and the right person might be in a room, an agent might be in a room or an editor might be in a room or a Superfly podcaster might be in the room and might be able to put you on or you might bump into her brother on the street and then the world just changes. Be ready with something to say. So what you'll find is that if you have repetitive things that you do in your own life or messages about, let's say if it's the podcast or if it's the book, then what are those three things that you're always going to land on? And so you have the information of where you're at and what's going on. So, hi, my name is Rashib and I have a, a book. It's called About That Life, Leadership Lessons for the Herb Professional. And here's what the book does for you. It's uh, Southern sayings and it's things and lessons that we learn from the block. And it allows you to use also the experience that you have to be successful in corporate spaces and community spaces. And please, you can go buy the book. It's on the website, aboutthatlifebook.com. And that was just a sample of having three things ready so you never seem unprepared. And it serves you because I must say, as you continue to grow as a professional um, or enhance and just evolve, people are going to just say, oh, can you say a few words for us? And you want to be ready and you want to nail it. Absolutely. So we're in New York City and we know everybody in the city has something going on. Everybody got a hustle. Everybody got a hustle. They've got a brand they're trying to push. They have talents. They're trying to politic. They're trying to sell you on something. So you can often walk into a room in an event and you don't know who you're going to run into. Some of the people that I have been two feet away from at events you look and you're like, I didn't even know they were going to be here, right? I just saw them on TV this morning. But it can make you feel like a shrinking violet. Like you come in and you have your points prepared and you, you know, you're ready to go. And then you get in with all these movers and shakers and power brokers. And all of a sudden you're clutching your cocktail in the corner, waiting for someone to say something to, to you. So what would you tell that young professional who has their points ready, but when they get in the room and they see that they could be eclipsed, for lack of a better term, by the more powerful who are there. How do you encourage them to remain confident and be willing to take that first step and shake hands and, you know, introduce themselves? Well, it's one of the lessons I write in the book. And I say, make love to the crowd. Mm -hmm. You just got to go and sometimes walk around and shake hands and introduce yourself. One of the things that held me back for the longest was just my awkwardness. Or if I was, um, I'm not the, I'm just being blunt. I'm not the most masculine guy out Mm -hmm. there. And so there were times in my life, in my career that I could really see in someone's face. Like if I would say hello to them, I could see in their eyes that they, oh, he's a little different Mm -hmm. and that I retreated from those interactions or it was just something like an impediment that I lived with. Like I was like I was disabled or something where I would see that they recognized something different. And I just kept doing it. I just kept introducing myself. So there was a piece of me that I am. I can be awkward at times. I must say I'll type up a big old email and there'll be one word misspelled or something. And it drives me crazy. It sends you over the edge, right? (laughs) But I'm that guy. Mm -hmm. Like, I now am at a space where it wasn't me unless uh, (laughs) there was one thing misspelled or letters juxtaposed, right? So I often encourage young professionals to, you have your talking points, just make love to the crowd, fan out, go in and say hello and be willing to risk just to say, hi, my name is such and such. If you're in the space, you're in the space for a reason. You are worthy enough to be the space, in the space, and you never know what that interaction may yield. And you never know who the person you're speaking to. Sometimes you may say hello to someone else and makes their day. Someone speaking to you might make your day. That's all what's available. So just like I said, only what you are not giving can be lacking in any situation. If you don't give risk 
or it won't show up for you. If you won't uh, give just uh, trying, it won't show up for you. So I offer that they walk around the room, they say hello, and you never know what may happen. Last thing I say, will say is there was a time in my life that I was trying to get into an organization and the organization, um, I couldn't, I had just trials and tribulations trying to get into the organization, right? And I couldn't figure out what it was. And I realized for me how I show up in other spaces. So some rooms I show up in, I, I'm the social butterfly. I walk around the room. I say, hello, how are you? I'm making love to the crowd. With this organization and in those rooms, I would hold down the wall and hold my drink and not say anything. Mm -hmm. So through my transformational work, I realized that that was the disconnect. I was being my authentic self in other spaces, but not with the space with the organization I was trying to join. So one day I got invited to an, a function and I promised myself, I looked and I thought and I said, okay, what do you normally do in other situations? I walk the room, even if I've had food in my teeth, even if someone I saw that glare in their eyes that they realized I was a little different. It didn't matter to me in those other spaces. I just walked the room. So this time I said, you know what? I'm going to be myself no matter what, even if they throw shade or what have you. So lo and behold, I go to this event and I said, I'm going to be myself no matter what. I walked the room, introduced myself, reintroduced myself to people who already knew me. And some gave me nasty looks. Other people were happy that I was being speaking to them first. On my way out of that event, one of the persons who I had known stopped me and he said, oh, it's nice to finally meet you. Wow. And I get what he meant. Like I was actually showing up as my authentic self because they had seen me in the community being a social butterfly, but I wasn't being a social butterfly with them. So I offer your listeners to be themselves and be authentic. And you never know who's in the room. Somebody else from Louisiana might be in the room. Hey. <laughs> hey, baby. Hey, baby. Yeah. <laughs> what you know? So authenticity. One of the things that stood out to me about the book is the title. About that life, leadership lessons for the urban professional. And the reason that this stood out for me is that as I've started working to build this brand and brand and the speaking that I do and all those things, I never want to try to be all things to all men. But often when we serve a specific community, particularly, quote, urban communities yes. or communities of color, People have things to say. Let's mm -hmm. just keep it real. Why are you isolating? You know, why are you segregating? Why are you focused specifically on this group? And they, they treat it as a negative thing. That mm -hmm. question is never asked of the majority. Mm -hmm. Why are you not integrating? Why are you not diversifying? But we get it a lot when we say words like urban. Mm -hmm. So what drove you to really focus on that segment of the population with the book? Well, just being a New Yorker mm -hmm. with New Orleanian roots. So I'm a transplant to New York and New York is home. I... So many things I came to the table with. So I was Southern. Some days I'm country. I don't like to say I'm country, <laughs> but then I'm black. Right. And then I was raised evangelical. Bible was beat over my head. We know right? about that. <laughs> <laughs> and so all of these things I brought to the table and then I came to New York and then, well, not even in New York, but in New Orleans as well. But I operate in corporate spaces where you have to diminish all of that. Right. You have to. Uh, turn off what you would normally say or how you would normally answer someone versus putting it in a corporate context or putting it in a way that's quote unquote accepted. But yet at the same time, us as 
as I'd like to say, urban professionals, we lead these dual lives and then we're still giving back to our communities. So by day, we're working with spaces where we're muted. And then by night, we're still going back into our communities, still helping others. Uh, some days, you know, we're brunching with the best of them and other days we're out doing voter registration. Right. And it's OK to go from boardroom to the block and vice versa. A lot of us that's our backgrounds. Some of us, you know, were born with silver spoons in our mouths. Others were not. And I'm talking about urban professionals. Um, we're all of that. And I think because of the dynamics of who we are as uh, usually black and brown people and what our communities look like in some of our climes that I wanted to specifically identify that. Like these are urban professionals, not just city dwellers, but even in the suburbs, those dynamics are still present where they're they're one way at work and then they're another way at home with their people. Right. Awesome. So you've mentioned your backstory a, a little bit, and I know all about that <laughs> growing up church. Yes. <laughs> um, but most people who move to New York City do so with intention. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm leaving college or I'm leaving the Midwest or the South and I'm coming to pursue my dream in the Big Apple. Your story is different. Mm -hmm. You landed in New York City in 2005. Yes. Hurricane Katrina. Two pairs of jeans and three shirts. So you talk about in the book the shame around yeah. that. Why did you have shame around what frankly was a crisis that no one expected and had nothing to do with you was completely outside of your control. Why were you ashamed that that is what brought you to New York City? Well, I think with most of how I was assimilated and raised is that to assimilate and to fit in. And I think about that often and what made me ashamed. I think about how often or so many times in my life I, I did not want to draw attention to myself. So if I was a little different because, um, you know, I'll just I'm a gay man. And but up until many years, I couldn't figure that out. Mm -hmm. Not that it wasn't always present, but, you know, uh, I didn't want to draw attention to myself. So th those themes carried over in my life. And so um, being an HR professional in New Orleans with a hospitality company, Hurricane Katrina happens. I've ev I've evacuated to Baton Rouge, it took five hours to drive what normally takes 45 minutes. Um, I. We were in a condo that uh, the lights went out because her, uh, Baton Rouge got hit with hurricane force winds as well. So fast forward a week later, when you talk about or ask the question about being um, extraordinary on an ordinary day, we were a week later, I was finally able to get cell service. And I called my corporate office in New York to say that I'm OK as the HR manager wasn't the director that I had already spoken to the director. But I said, I'm OK. And they said, Rashid. We want you to come to New York. I was walking down the stairs of the condo and it was, I said, something's, I probably didn't verbalize it this way, but I knew that something was life altering in that moment. Like if I say no, because I wanted to be safe and try to make it back to the city to see what was still left, or do I say yes, look forward and let whatever happened happen. So got to New York. I, I said, yes, got to New York with two pairs of jeans and three shirts. That's all that I evacuated with. And what, how I, f I was already in love with New York because I had been here before, but I fell in love because I got to go to work day in and day out. So back to the shame of it, I, well, they were calling Americans refugees, refugees. in America, you know, and 
What began to show up is people wanted to help. But let me tell you how the help felt. So people would call and say, oh, my God, I have some clothes if you need some clothes. Of course, the donated clothes were clothes that you nobody would wear. <laughs> the and, stuff people want to get rid of. Right? right. And stuff that people haven't worn since 1976. Right. So it was the shame of being ungrateful. Right. Or feeling ungrateful when someone wanted to help. Um, I was living on a co-worker's uh, sofa for the t a time. Um and then the questions would come if my phone number used to be a 504 phone number. So everywhere I went, you know, 8 million people, no one would ask me anything. But the minute I said or I exchanged numbers with someone, they'd say, I'd say 504. And they'd say, you're from New Orleans? And I'd say, yes. And they'd say, was your family hurt or did you lose anything in Katrina? And then began the story. And then. I began to be in spaces, community events here in New York, especially with our young professionals and everybody giving answers for what needs to happen in New Orleans. But nobody was a New Orleanian. Right. How are you telling me what I just experienced? And this is our people in our you know, young professional spaces. So it was wanting to fit in, wanting to capture the new um, experiences that I had because I was also in New York and I had decided to stay here and it was exciting, but I was torn because of home. I was torn because I was able to be able-bodied immediately. Like I didn't lose work. I kept working. I mean, my company flew me out of Baton Rouge to New York, whereas other people, you know, family, they sat on the roof for three days or uh, my grandmother was living in a hotel at a little while after that. And then she deceased after that because she grieved herself because they couldn't. They said, you can't go back to the house you raised all your kids in. Um it, it was all of that. And I didn't want anyone to know. And I realized and I write about it in the book that it took from 2005 to 2012 for me to finally admit it. Wow. So I'm glad you brought up the piece about your grandmother, because we like to look at things in like the neat little package. Like I was in New Orleans. I got to Baton Rouge. My job called. I came and everything was great from there on. But often there's an aftermath to, to crises mm -hmm. or you may come through something incredibly traumatic and inherently believe that I've come through the worst of it. Mm -hmm. And now it's only I only have up to mm -hmm. go to from here. And that's not always the case. And I often say success is not linear. Our journeys are not necessarily in a straight trajectory upward. So you were dealing with a crisis after a crisis. Yes. Right? You left New Orleans, you came here and your grandmother had then passed away. Were there other periods in that seven year time frame or even beyond that where you felt like, wow, I thought I had been through the worst of it. And now this. Well, there were many times where people I couldn't talk about it. Mm -hmm. I went on with my daily life, never having um, any mental health uh, conversations around it, but I could not talk about it. So as long as I was avoiding it, it, everything was fine. The minute someone found out I was from New Orleans and asked me about Hurricane Katrina, I would lose it. Um, there was a time when I was in New York and I was at work and two of my employees had, there were elder women, so mothers, as we'd like to say, mm -hmm. right? One of the ladies just walked up to me and I thought it was just a regular day. She rubbed me on the back and she said, baby, we praying for your family. And I burst into tears. That baby would have got me. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm falling apart at work. But it was just that on the forefront, like I was on the edge. The shame also I talk about in the book, my grandmother being a devout Catholic, which um, we had to wait like weeks, almost a month to bury her because wow. there were no morticians um, just because the city was empty. Um, there were periods of where I lived out of a suitcase for a while. 
just living in someone else's space. So I think even when I got my own space, I was still in that mindset of I need to be able to pick up and go. I'd live like that for a year. I would buy cleaning supplies because um, there were no stores or cleaning supplies available in New Orleans because shipments weren't coming in mm -hmm. because they had stopped all traffic. So we, uh, those of us who were in the outer skirts of America would send so when they did start shipping, we would send cleaning supplies home so people could clean certain things. So I would keep multiple cleaning supplies just in case I had to send it or I didn't know when the store was going to shut down. This is me in New York living like that. Yeah. Wow. So that's interesting to me because we often don't realize how our experiences inform who we are today and what serves as a trigger for us or maybe making us to make certain decisions. So how did you get to a point where you could make a decision from an inner knowing and an inner peace as opposed to a place of lack or fear or let's call it what it is, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder? How did you make that transition? Absolutely. So when I talk about going through my own transformation journey, so how I found, uh, so I partner with a company here in New York and we do uh, group trainings where we ha we just have conversations about the basic. We talk about um, integrity. We talk about honesty and trust. All things that are basic and all things that we think we know on the surface, I think now I know that when you really start internalizing or, or seeing what your internal belief about honesty is or your internal belief about integrity is, uh, it becomes different. And so how when I was preparing for the National Urban League president, national presidency, I started training up just like any athlete would do. I think I took a year out and I was reading every book that I could. I was watching every uh, YouTube I could or watching every, you know, Oprah masterclass I could just to make sure that I was getting my skills up. One of those things, I had just finished reading a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, Living Buddha and Living Christ. Just put the book down. I was sitting on my sofa. It was a Friday. I put the book down and I said, huh, I go to I read all these books. Maybe I should find a workshop to go to, like some meetup.com or something like that. Sunday, right after that Friday, a friend of mine said, would you be willing to go to this workshop? It was right on time. And it was like an aha moment because I had I didn't share that, that I had just said that to myself on Friday. What I now know that that I didn't know is that it was all on purpose. Right. So when you ask the question about how do I did I get to that point? It was being in the work of those that those that conversation of looking at what were my secrets and how the secrets were holding power over me. So one of my secrets and shame was being uh, coming here because as a result of Hurricane Katrina, um, uh, had other stuff to unpack and knowing that to stop and look at, I knew intellectually to call it things triggers, but never really stopped and looked at what was triggering me. Right. So in a weekend, we were able to look at that and I was able to identify patterns and we do something where we stop, we look, we choose, and then we do it. And what that means is stop all the chatter Start like when the issue is high and the, the emotions are high, just stop. Look, what are the options? Can I go left or can I go right? Am I going to lose my mind in this moment or am I actually going to make a decision that supports uh, me or the situation? And then uh, choosing it because everything we are is a choice. Even choosing not to choose is a choice. So sure. I ain't got to do nothing I don't want to do. We all say we have to get up and go to work. No, you don't. Now, choosing not to, you'll suffer the consequences, but you don't have to. And then we actually do it and it goes beyond what we just have that nice idea. We actually put it into action. And so that was 
I say all that to say, acknowledging what my secrets were, acknowledging what my triggers were, um, getting clear on my relationship with honesty and integrity and getting clear on um, what, where my heart was. So up until then, I used to say I didn't want a relationship. Now I'm honest with myself saying, yeah, I actually do. And it would really be nice to be booed up. Um, and that was huge because before I was just a soldier and now I'm like vulnerable and it works. Right. And I think sometimes we make choices as a defense mechanism because yes. admitting that you want it is also admitting that you don't have it. Correct. Right. And we yes. move through life. I know like I grew up in, for the most part, a single parent home. My, my parents divorced very early, but my dad had been in and out between, you know, in that time period. And I would always say, you know, I didn't grow up in a broken home. I, I had everything that I needed, which is true in that I had a great village, but I was denying myself the moment to feel that lack, to feel the void in my heart because my, my father wasn't present. And I personally feel that the the first step to fill, the, to fill the void is to acknowledge it and acknowledge what you didn't get that you need and the desire that you have now to overcome that. So uh, shifting gears a little bit, you came here, was working, you were working for the same company, but your career has gone through a few iterations. Namely, you've been an employee, you've been an entrepreneur, you've been a hybrid of both. Yes. Tell me a little bit more about your story from a career perspective. So I studied television in school. Mm -hmm. uh, would you believe that I wanted to be a reporter? I could see you as a reporter. Actually. Everybody says that. <laughs> and not only did I want to re be a reporter, pero yo quise hacer las no la noticias en una uh, canal de Latinos. You wanted to do you wanted to do the news on a Spanish in channel. a Spanish, mm -hmm. yes. Ser un reportero de la noticia. Um, yo hablo I, español. Okay, yo también. <laughs> I thought I was going to be on Univision or Telemundo, and I mean wow. that. I mean that. Somewhere along the line, that got lost, and here's where it got lost. Reporters in 1999, when I graduated from undergrad, were making $16,000 a year. I could get any other job in the world and make more than that. So I dialed back from my vision and I got a job in hospitality um, making more than that. Right. Mm -hmm. And wound up uh, just by happenstance, getting into human resources, I was a front desk agent trying to figure out what I was going to do. And then I wind up going to um, human resources as a recruiter. So that's where I've been for the last 18 years. Um, several iterations. So I've had like my own internal struggles and questioning whether is this actually my purpose? <laughs> I actually wanted to be a reporter. How am I now being some super administrator? How I've uh, reconciled it and made peace with it is that the reason why I wanted to be a reporter is because I wanted to give people information that, that they could use. Um, and I'll say that again. I wanted to be a reporter because I wanted to give people information that they could use. And I still do that every right. day as an HR professional, especially when people look like me. I can. And I've done that my whole career where I've been able to pull people in the office and say, look, this is what's going to make you successful or coach them and support them. So through that, um, through my journey, it's been in hospitality companies. It's been in property management companies. There have been times where I flourished because the environment flourished or the environment was right and the company culture was right. There were other times that it was a toxic company culture and I had to look at how did I end up there? Like I made a choice out of desperation mm -hmm. just because the money was better. And then I go to the job and it's the worst job on the planet. And then I began you know, over my life, just question like, is this really who I am or what I should be doing? And if I don't do this, then how am I going to eat? And what am I going to do? Um, 
I believe we're all given gifts, especially or specifically for us. And so one of my gifts is connecting with people. One of my gifts is supporting people with their next steps, whatever that may be. People always come to me and call me for advice. So I wanted to now monetize that as a consultant. So there have been times where I've trusted myself and I've stepped out. So sometimes it's been by choice. Other times it's been by force and force. I've been laid off a couple of times. Um, one of the stories that I now am admitting that I never told because I put it in the back of my mind, I've been fired from a job. And so forced into saying, OK, is this the universe telling me to now try on my own? So I've done that. And um, what where I am today and what I talk to you about is I'm parallelpreneuring. So I do have a nine to five where I'm a director of human resources. I still do my trainings and coaching and one on one in 90 day programs with um, my clients. That was most responsible for me because financially, where with cash flow and just with the clients coming in, I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed the freedom around it. It didn't yield the lifestyle that I like to live. And so stepping back into nine to five was able a quick way for me to get uh, access to the cash that I like. And until I make a new choice, I'm still always open to full time entrepreneurship. And what that looks like for me is um, I want to roam the world while I'm making money. So right. sometimes the online webinars through my coaching. So a lot of the stuff that I talk about in the book that is coming out this year where I'm going to have online workshops that you can purchase. And one day it'll be enough to support me. I'm also cleaning up some either credit or cleaning up bills to where if I'm either forced out or choose to go out again, that um, it's easier to do it or I don't have as much overhead. So some again, the ins and outs through my career have been either um, being in environments to where I had to question, like, is this really what I should be doing? And if I wasn't doing this, what should I be doing? And then creating what I should be doing in my own company, RT Consulting, and just trying it. So uh, being willing to try, having some success, having some failures and choosing it day in and day out. So I'm glad you were so honest because I know tons of entrepreneurs and I know entrepreneurs who, if you look online, you think that they're in it full time, but I know the real story. Mm -hmm. I've had to make choices and, and pivot between full time entrepreneurship and another hustle and, you know, put entrepreneurship to the side. Uh, but I recall it made me think about a story. I spoke on a panel with women from all walks of life. Some were employees with side businesses. Some ran it full time. At the at that point, I was in it full time and going through a lot under incredible stress, some depression and anxiety as well over the cash flow and just business development and trying to keep the lights on at home and in the office. But someone on the panel said she was telling a story about how they came to turn her utilities off. Mm, and she wow. was in her business full time and she didn't have the money to pay, but she was so committed to what she was trying to build that she just realized that, that was what it was going to have to be. And she said to the crowd, if you haven't been there and you're not willing to be in that space as a business owner, you're not a real entrepreneur. Now, I didn't publicly disagree with her, but I'm sitting there looking at her like, is she serious? That you have to sit in, you know, being destitute, right? Or not being able to pay your bills. And I'm not knocking anyone who has that story. If you have the capacity to deal with that and be okay with your lights being cut off and your account being in overdraft, great. 
Not everybody has that. I know for me personally, I like to know that my bills are, are going to be paid. If that means that I have to pivot, I have to pivot. Right? right. But why do you think there's so much judgment around the parallelpreneurs, the people who are choosing to continue with a job that that pays them on a regular schedule and build on the side from the folks, the judgment from the folks who are in it full time and really struggling? They're always like, you know, you're not about it. You're not a real entrepreneur. So what I think is and something that I've learned over my years is that you you don't know how far you can go until you go too far. So I will say that the person who's on your panel knows how far she'll go. Mm -hmm. And she knows something about herself, right? That maybe we have an access. So I'll say in this moment, I'm not there yet either. Mm -hmm. I'm not there to where I'm responsible enough to know that, okay, we're getting in the red, something, you know, and now I need to pivot and make it get back in the black. Um, and, and, and that's okay. And for me, that feels like an honest, responsible choice. What I also have known and seen throughout my journey is that there have been times where I absolutely gave up attachment to salary. Mm -hmm. So there, over the years, um, the salary has been a validator, right? Whether I took it because it was the right thing to do or not, or just it was attractive, it has been a validator. Through my entrepreneurship, I realized that I had to get over that attachment or release that attachment to really live the life that I dream about. Now, there, even in entrepreneurship, it's not free. <laughs> Right. Consultants cost a certain amount. If you get people to support you, production or whatnot, or you uh, subscribe to systems that can support you, sales funnels or whatnot, lead generators or whatnot, all of that costs. So it's okay for me. It's okay to have a day job to actually fund it and be a funder. So I will say you don't know how far you can go until you go too far. People who, whichever state they wind up in, I think they do learn some of something about themselves. I learned something about myself when I actually, you know, uh, talked a good game and got the client mm -hmm. and actually had no way to actually deliver on what they needed <laughs> at that moment. But yet I talked a good game and now I have to figure it out. Um, I jumped in the middle and now I got to figure it out. Um, I think in America or just in the world, we all have this notion that, you know, or we see the sensationalized stories or the glorified stories of, mm -hmm. oh, I'm an entrepreneur and I, I made it work and I started this, you know, I was making diapers for my kids and now I sell them to billions around the world and it was just that easy. It's never that easy and it's always a journey and judgment around it is... Um, Misery loves company. Mm -hmm. People want you to struggle as hard as they struggle. And I think the world we live in today, there are so many creature comforts that we want to maintain those creature comforts. Um, again, I'm not there yet. But what I do know about myself today is that I am there when it comes to salary. So if I do uh, walk out of my nine to five now, knowing that um, it may not, I may not make that money on my own, but then maybe I will and maybe I'll blow it out of the water. For an example, I have a friend that um, for years, he was making um, $80,000 and uh, we both worked at the same company. Company was bought. We were both laid off. He wound up uh, stepping into consultancy, um, learning and development. Um, within one year, he made $200,000 wow. and he sat at his desk for 15 years at the company, miserable, and he's a person of color. And I can't tell you how many times his superiors told him he was not ready for the next step and how that weighed on him. And I sat and I watched him. I worked with him for five years. I sat and watched him gain weight, lose weight, you know, just go in and out only to have be forced out of the company because we were all uh, laid off, only to have someone else find value in his worth and then him make more money than he was uh, 
uh, sweating for every day. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, you were forced out. This person was forced out. But I know there are people who are going to listen to this interview and say, this is confirmation for me. I'm miserable in, in this environment, in this job. I'm not being promoted. It's toxic. I can't stand my boss. I'm kind of floating by and they have to get realized that I'm not giving 100 percent, but they're, they're going to be on to me sooner or later. That's it. I'm going to make the leap. What considerations would you tell them to focus on if they're thinking about jumping with both feet into entrepreneurship or, or any endeavor and trying to get out of a toxic work environment? Or a dead-end job. What came up for me as you were asking that mm -hmm. question, I love Wendy Williams. And <laughs> I used to listen to Wendy, Jersey girl. Mm -hmm. I used to listen to Wendy when she was on the radio. And she said, if you don't have FU money <laughs> saved up, you can't make that leap. And she would always talk about hatching a plan. Mm -hmm. I do believe people should hatch a plan. Um, and, and here's the thing. What I now know is that it's good to hatch a plan just because. Right. Just nothing has to be wrong for you to say, okay, if... You know, Meghan Markle gets in. Prince Harry asked me to marry him. What's going to be that plan? Mm -hmm. I'm being funny. But what if I decided to move back to New Orleans? What would be that plan? Um, and I try to think long term in that way to say if next year I wanted to stop working, what would that look like if I want to move to Am Amsterdam? which I do. Nice. Um, I think it. everyone should ha hatch a plan and look at if you weren't doing that current job, what would it be? I often encourage young professionals to look at the next job description and ask yourself honest questions like, can I do this? Or have I, uh, do I have the certification or have I worked on these types of teams? And so if not, if the answer is no, then you need to get busy by, about doing it or how maybe our parents say be about your business mm -hmm. and, and get the credentials that you need. Now, I want everyone to be responsible and, you know, have savings in their accounts. And so if they do need to hatch a plan, all of the financial experts have said you need six to nine months mm -hmm. worth or maybe 12 months worth of emergency savings. I know in today's world that may not always be realistic, but you will see it happen like you if your rent is paid, that's a load off your shoulders. Um, in toxic situations, you're either forced out or you choose to leave out. Uh, always be looking. There was a time in my life that I never looked, I never accepted recruiters calls mm -hmm. because I was so married to the company. Those folks were good to me. Those majority folks were good to me <laughs> and I was married to them and I never accepted. So five years went by and what happened in those five years is that LinkedIn blew up. Uh. So all of a sudden I'm laid off for the first time in my life. LinkedIn is a beast and I didn't know anything about it. Although I had a LinkedIn profile, so I had to do some quick learning. Now in this space, I never turn down a call or a conversation that say, hey, let's talk about it and let's see what happens um, because I don't know what it, it will yield. Um, in the toxicity of things, um, you'll know when it's enough for you. And my request is just to, hey, be in action the entire time. If you see the writing on the wall, if you see that they're trying to set you up mm -hmm. because that's what happens in these environments, hey, be in action, have be on, going on your interviews. Make sure your LinkedIn is up to date. Make sure your resume is fresh so you can um, and and send it out to people. Send it out to search firms. See what happens. So um, maybe one day you'll tell them I'm going. If would, Did you also ask if they wanted to step into entrepreneurship? Yes. Mm -hmm. So start also solidifying your plan, right? So it may be getting your um, your what is that? Your LLC? It may be a sole proprietorship. There's so many checklists online and so many people that are willing to help you. It may be also getting your tax ID. It may be um, uh, templates and tools to help you get your business plan. And 
I ask people all the time, what would you do if no one paid you? There's some things that we do naturally. Like I love to support systems. I love to revamp stuff. Mm -hmm. I love to simplify and make it sequential. I can't stand stuff out of order. Um, So, and I do that just because if I walk into my community meeting or if I walk into a church and they need someone to do it and I see it's a hot mess, I'm like, look, I'll take it because it's just a mess and I need to do it. Okay, now I can monetize that because that's something I would do if nobody paid me. And I just find myself, you know, 12 o'clock at night or whatnot, just doing it um, because someone needs the help. Um, And I've since monetized that. Right. right? So getting your foundation set should be first and really getting who you are, your idea um, packaged. And so when you need to take that step, you're ready to do it. Sometimes you also want to get your feet wet and start doing it before you even leave the job. So some of us need a little more assurance. And if it's parties on the weekends or if it's these whatever you do with clients, get uh, your foundation, your business foundation set first and then uh, start working on the next steps after that. Got it. I like that. So you mentioned, you know, the question, what would you do if nobody paid you? Uh I want to ask about free work because the complaints and the gripes that you hear from entrepreneurs often, especially entrepreneurs who are not selling something, you're not selling a widget. You have a a gift or a talent or a service that you're trying to monetize. We've all been there. Mm -hmm. Someone asking you for free work or saying, I just want to pick your brain for a few minutes Asking you to give them for free the very the very thing that you are already or preparing to sell. Mm-hmm. So where do you draw the line between seeing an opportunity and seeing that it might be worthwhile to do it, even if you're not going to be paid at all, or you're not going to be paid with your, what you're worth, and actually digging in and saying, no, this is the service that I provide and I'm, I'm happy to talk about how much it will cost and you can pay for it. But if you're not willing to actually compensate me, I'm not going to be able to help you. How do you draw that line in the sand? So in a moment, when I answer this mm-hmm. question, I'm going to go there and come back and please don't blush. Um, I always say nobody questions a hooker's price. <laughs> I like that. Nobody questions a hooker's price. And the hooker or the sex worker, mm-hmm. that's politically that's correct. That's politically correct. Will we don't their, want to get in trouble. Yes, right, sex put worker. Put their price on the table and people either question like, is there a bundle in that? Or mm-hmm. can I get something else on top of that? And it's a go. Nobody questions a hooker's price. Forgive me. With that said, I absolutely get those calls that you are talking about Mm -hmm. to where someone wants to pick my brain and the picking my brain is actually what I sell, right? Or the service that I provide. So it can be relationship dependent. There are some people that our relationships are, I'm actually picking their brain. We're Mm -hmm. picking each other's brain. It's reciprocal. Reciprocal. And it sometimes yields to, um, actually, we have an idea together. Like, oh my God, I didn't think about that. I think when it's uh, one-offs where someone says, oh, you should talk to this person, I do say, well, I actually do coaching calls for an hour for 125. Love you, mean it. And because time is valuable and I have to stop everything that I'm doing to make sure that I'm focused up listening to you. Absolutely. And providing you with the, the value that you're seeking with your next step. Um, there are other times that I do think that it's just uh, it's it's being generous and giving and uh, a lot of relationships that I've seen or a lot of business deals that I've seen have come from just small relationships or small conversations. Uh, people sitting next to each other in a shared workspace and they say, well, what do you think about this? And then not realizing that it actually connects to what they're doing. And oh my God, we have an event. And oh my God, we just made money together. <laughs> so in our building our networks, I, I want to offer that not just building your network, but building relationships. Uh, it's 
you'll know it when you see it. I believe that sometimes, mm -hmm. hey, this actually needs to be a, a client uh, provider situation. And then other times this is just us you know, talking and saying, hey, what's up fam, or what's going on? And let's, let me pick your brain for a second. Um, I've had people who there was some form of a relationship. And then I realized they were in the middle of a lawsuit and they were asking me all things what HR would do. So they made you an expert witness on yes. the low? <laughs> yes, the company was Starbucks, but that's another story. <laughs> And I said, really, you're wow. asking me things that we got to stop because you're calling me. It wasn't a one-off conversation. They were, as they were going through depositions and different things, they were calling me back to see how should they pivot and whatnot. And I said, I stopped and I said, wait, I absolutely would provide advice, but it's going to be for a certain price. And um, he stopped asking questions. And here's the thing. When we, you and I talked about self-worth versus self-esteem, I have to now know, and it took me a long time to get there. I know that I'm enough that if I say this is my price and whether you pick it up or don't, here's what it is. Like I said, nobody questions a hooker's price. And I am far from a hooker or a sex worker. At the same time, what I got is valuable and it's going to get to where you need to go. Absolutely. And sometimes you got to say no now and you may that may mean, oh, you know what? Well, I'm not generating any income at the moment, but I'm willing to say no to make sure that my worth and my value is known to the world and wait for the right client to come along and not operate out of desperation. Right. And 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 sometimes it requires you to investigate more. So when they call you and want to pick your brain, you being the uh, the business owner, well, let's try to dig deeper to find out what are you actually trying to accomplish? And then that's when you can also, because you want to provide a solution for them, right? And not just a, a pick your brain, but find out what are you trying to accomplish? Do you know, I actually can help you with that. Right. And let me get a proposal together and get that to you. And and that's real. And so where they may have called because their scope was limited, you actually expanded their scope. And now they know what's possible. They have the support. Income is generated and everybody's happy and nobody questioned that price. <laughs> I love it. Okay. So whose story inspires you? My goodness. Whose story inspires me? Can I say Oprah? Of course you can. <laughs> can I say Barack Obama? Auntie o? Can I say, uh, let's see, um, not for nothing, my mother, really, and just mm -hmm. um, single parent household as well. Um, I do have a relationship with my father now, and he's in my life. We're actually twins, so I just want to acknowledge that. And I'm saying we're twins. I look exactly like him. <laughs> But I joke with people saying everything that I learned, whether you like it about me or didn't like about me, everything I learned that's right about me, I did learn at home. And, you know, if it was we were single parent kids and my mom worked, she drove garbage trucks. Wow. So I was, a female uh, garbage truck. Driver. Yeah. Well, here's what it did. So there was a lot of learning in that. She was making like $22 an hour in 87. In 87. So, so we were able to live in a neighborhood where it was always double parent households. And people thought I was of a certain background. And my mom was actually driving garbage trucks. So um, and we never put on airs and nobody lied about anything. But that would be, oh, you live in this neighborhood and you do what? And but it was a single parent household. And then and I was never dishonest about it. People said, well, what does your mom do? She's an accountant. She's different. And I said, no, she's a, she drives garbage trucks. And we didn't say sanitation in New Orleans. We said garbage. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. People would come to our house and they go, well, this is nice. And my mom would always say, just because I work in funk doesn't mean I have to come home to it. That's like that's a good one right there. <laughs> 
And she had a gift for driving. She actually owns her own company now and drives 18 wheelers, 48 states, Canada, and Mexico. She's a 66-year-old woman still doing it. And what, going back to my childhood, we had home-cooked meals. Even when we had to figure out how to cook for ourselves, she would, you know, stand behind us and say, do this and do that. That didn't hit home to me until the recession. And when the recession, when they would do all these news stories that people were actually not eating at home, they were eating out and how expensive that was. Mm -hmm. And so now the recession made people uh, eat at home. And I was thinking I was forced to sit down and have dinner. There was no eating at anybody else's house or there was no Dunkin' Donuts for breakfast. It was, you want an Egg McMuffin? We'll make one right Right. now. And so, and also um, faith-wise, so everything that works about me and faith and religion, I got from her. There's some heavy things I think about when I was five years old, she would ask me, where do you want to spend eternity, heaven or hell? I now think that that's too heavy of a question for a five-year-old, but... It's sure enough evangelical, though, to ask that question to a five-year-old. But what I also think about her, so as my faith has expanded and my understanding and awareness of spirituality and faith and my relationship with God and and who Jesus is and who and what I'm entitled to I think about I actually learned from her reason being she had a best friend named Vera Vera was a Buddhist we used to always go to Vera's house and she would always say don't touch that don't do this and don't talk about this around my kids but the mere fact that I knew that there was something called Buddhism mm-hmm. is was in my mind progressive beyond anybody she was ever raised around or anybody that I knew at the time. So um, she is my shero. I also have a sister named April. I'm four years older than April. April loves me and I love her. She has a son named um, Kai David and I'm his uncle, Teal Rashib. So I think people in my family, if I looked out in the community, um, there's so many people, you know, I'm still in love with Barack Hussein Obama II mm-hmm. and Michelle LaVon Robinson Obama. I love that you gave the whole name. That's what they're going to ask for on Judgment Day. <laughs> Are they here? I'm I'm standing right behind them in line. Um, grace through unmeasurable things, being extraordinary on ordinary days. Barack, we've seen it from start to finish. Perfect. Perfect. I know it wasn't good enough for some people, but right, it was we know. perfect. Uh I have friends in my life that have been tremendous and healers and guides. I have a brother named um, Joe Randolph. He's actually a fraternity brother. I'm going to Dublin with him. Um, I'm doing a book event in March 23rd. I mean, I'm sorry, May 23rd. Nice. And then um, then we're going to Berlin and doing another book event. Um, I have a... Uh, friend named Wiki Tucson. I have friends named Tiffany Thomas, just people that have really, uh, a friend named Greg, people that have loved me beyond what I knew how to be loved. A friend named Paul Trussell, I write about that in the book or dedicate the book to him. Um, There's so many people to name one person, but um, uh, I'm grateful that I'm aware that there's an abundance out there versus isolating myself and not choosing to see how good things really are. Absolutely. So you mentioned your two book stops. What else is next for Rashid Thomas? So absolutely. So um, I have a website, RashidThomas.com or about that life book.com. And in a in less than a month, 
people will be able to uh, purchase an online webinar called Make Love to the Crowd. It gives them networking tips and tools and strategies to be successful in any room. And it's told from a, a, a Southern twang sort of way. And it just says things that I say that are unconventional, like some of the things that I said in this moment. But that's authentic Rashid. And so many years, I would not step into that. And what I now know is that the world was waiting for me to be exactly who I am. Mm -hmm. And nobody's shied away from that, especially me. So it's been great. So online webinars, I'm still out there um, doing uh, creating the book stops. So Dublin and the, the week before Memorial Day and then um, Berlin, the Sunday, the May 27th. So I'm excited about that and have a community out there and in conversation. So my request is people just uh, uh, sign up on my website so they can get updates and newsletters and everything that will be coming out this year is I'll keep them informed. There are some other things that um, I'm just work, really working on the, the webinar and the book tours. Awesome. And where can people find you on social media? Absolutely. So at Rashib, so R-A-H-S-H-I-B. And anytime you put that in, if there's someone else named Rashib Thomas, then I don't know who he is. That's an imposter because I'm, I'm the current reigning Mr. Rashib Thomas. I get that. Any final words for the, the people, the listeners out there? Absolutely. So like we talked about today, um, only what you are not giving can be lacking in any situation. The world is waiting for you to be exactly who you were called to be. Be authentic in every way possible and know when to pivot because everything doesn't need to be said in every moment. And love yourself um, abundantly. Um, that's been the greatest lesson for me um, over the years is that just to love and nourish myself and, and surround yourself with people that do the same for you. Um, risk beyond what you know. I think about my faith and my religion, and I think about how I, anytime I was raised and going to church, it was always someplace or somewhere out there. And the first time when I broke into six figures, um, that was I call it my walk on water moment. Mm -hmm. I got an offer letter that was six figures. This was a years ago. Got an offer letter that was six figures. It was the best offer I had ever had in my life. I knew in that moment that I wanted to trust beyond what I knew. So I pushed the offer letter back and asked for more money. And it wasn't Jesus calling Peter on the water. It was Rashid sitting at his desk trying to uh, demand his worth. That was my walk on water moment. Guess what? They gave me the offer letter back. It was more money than what they originally offered. And the rest is history. So just risk beyond what you know and trust. Trust yourself and trust the universe. And we are designed to be in relationship with one another. You can't do it alone. So uh, get you a ride or die. Well, I don't think there's anything left to be said after that. I've enjoyed our time together. So I hope have you I. Have. Thank you so much. To 26ers, make sure you go out there and get Rashib's book, About That Life, Leadership Lessons for the Urban Professional. Say your website one more time. Aboutthatlifebook.com. It's also on Amazon. That's where I got it as well. Make sure you follow him on social media. If you enjoy this podcast, don't forget to share it, tell the world about it. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening you for to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa, and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26th. That's December 26ER.